0: If you look at your landscape and you say, what will be the opportunity that gives me no regret? What allows me to push myself to the ultimate level that I want to be pushed to and being realistic about what that can be and what am I unwilling to sacrifice? So so defining all those things first for yourself and then going after your dream, I think is important.
1: Hey, everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori, and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. I want to welcome this week's guest, Shilpa Shah, to our show today. Shilpa is the co-founder of Kuyana, a fashion brand that marries luxury-level branding with premium quality and accessories, offering fewer better things to women at accessible price points. Shilpa spent the first part of her career designing web and mobile interfaces for Fortune 500 companies. Although she was passionate about design, it wasn't until she was pregnant with her first son that she felt empowered to do more in her life. Unsure what that right next step was, Shilpa decided to apply to business school at 32 while having a two and a half year old at home. Good thing she did because through the process, she met her co-founder, Carla, and they were inspired to create an affordable luxury direct to consumer brand, which might sound like the norm now, but they were true pioneers in this space in 2011. Today, they've grown their San Francisco-based company profitably, despite taking funding of more than $30 million. Kuyana has been recognized as one of the most innovative companies in America and continues to have a loyal base of customers and strong celebrity following. We'll talk to Shilpa about building a strong brand that is largely driven by word of mouth, why the concept of work-life balance is BS, and how the company navigated multiple challenges from raising money from investors who didn't understand their concept to now restructuring their business in the pandemic environment that we're in today. Welcome to the show, Shilpa.
0: I'm so excited to be here, Yasmin. I've heard so much about you through mutual friends and colleagues, and then also your other podcasts. It's it's a real pleasure.
1: Uh, thank you. It's amazing how small the world is. I know we talked about this before the interview, but I came across an article you wrote probably two, three years ago about motherhood, entrepreneurship, what it was like to have kids and start a business. And I'm excited that we finally crossed paths and are able to dig more deeper into the topic. So I know this will be a good one for our listeners. So thank you again.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I I always say that amazing women find each other. So, it's nice to to have this time to really connect in a
1: deeper way. Absolutely, and it's such an honor Well, on the podcast, we always love to start from the beginning. And I think it's really important for you because you've credited so much of your work ethic and resourcefulness, which as an entrepreneur is very helpful, uh, to your parents who immigrated actually from India and Uganda. So I would love to hear more about your family life and childhood.
0: Absolutely. I, I do totally think that that's the right place to start because I would not be who I am without that history. And later in my life, when certain decisions were presented to me, you know, options for me to explore, it was not lost on me, the opportunity that I've had to be here in this country, to have this education, how much my family had worked for me to have this moment. I like to kind of start with my grandfather on my dad's side. You know, he, even growing up, was super poor, His family had taken opportunity to go to South Africa, his older brothers to actually work. So British colonialism kind of from the beginning. And a teacher recognized his intelligence and encouraged him instead of trying to go be a shopkeeper, that he should go to college. And he actually spent, it was four rupees a month for him to go to school. One rupee that he actually got as a scholarship, one rupee that he got as an endowment, and two rupees that he begged for every month. And so through his hard work, working hard there in in education, he got a great position with the British government, but then still taking a leap of faith. He's kind of the original entrepreneur going to Uganda, taking advantage of that opportunity. And then so on and so forth. My dad did the same thing, went to Imperial College in London and then came to the U.S. So I, I say that we're in America by the British Imperial Bounce. Um, I love that. Going through four continents for me to be born in Los Angeles.
1: Yes, that is so beautiful. And I know you've joked a little bit about this, but being a daughter of immigrants, and I am as well, so I understand. So you ended up studying computer science, but you've always had this creative side in you growing up. So I would love to hear more about how you kind of intertwined both the analytical and creative side in your life before you really started Kuyana, because you had a whole other career that you had at the time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That that's the joke that you know I wanted to be a graphic designer, so I I went to to study computer science as close as I possibly could as a good immigrant daughter. I looked at the whole field of computer science and graphic design and and found the area that overlapped, which to me was always understanding how people think and see the world. I think through that immigrant lens, I wanted to have the opportunity to create experiences for people. And I thought that was a really good way to service them. And so for me, the graphic design tendencies, like my desire to always cut out the headlines in a, in a Harper's Bazaar, right? Just the beautiful typographic treatment. I was always looking at what the intention was of the designer. Like why did they choose to do that? And so I found a home in user interface design where it really did combine the ability to understand how somebody thinks and deliver a designed experience for them in the world within computer science, and also actually delivering a social mission. I was really passionate about advertising in high school, loved the Got Milk campaign, the Just Do It campaigns, like Think Different from Apple, and did an advertising internship at Chayette Day in LA, TBWA, Shiat Day, who did a lot of those campaigns and hated the consumerism part of it. Yeah, I actually wanted to design to help make people's lives better rather than designed to exploit towards a consumer product which is an interesting thread as we get to Guyana since I ended up in consumer in a very direct way but the creativity of of taking the entire process of understanding how someone thinks and and translating that into a physical experience is what I loved so it was really the converging of all of those different fields that allowed me to really feel my creative passion.
1: Yeah, and it's so beautiful to hear how early on you really knew what you enjoyed and you were in this world that you could really create in terms of user interface in uh, web and mobile. And my question for you is, it seemed like you had such a great experience, such a successful career. I think, you know, you're working 10 years before you went to business school, but what really prompted you to go to business school? Because you are 32 at the time and that's pretty much on the later end for those going to business school and you had a two-year-old. So how did you manage that? Because I know you you said people thought you were crazy. So what really? Prompted prompted you to do such a big transition in your life? It
0: actually started when I was 30 and I was pregnant with my first and I um, was so content with where I was. I loved that I was leaving some of the drama of my twenties behind. I actually found space in being a mom. It was this moment where I felt so confident with who I was and where I was and what my role was. And it wasn't that I was awash with some kind of maternal wave that, oh, now this is my calling. I'm going to be a mom. It was actually my son. And I tell him this, my firstborn, I tell him that him entering our lives gave me the confidence to go do more. It was this feeling that I wasn't done, that in some ways, that now all of these things were settled for me. And I I didn't want to worry about any kind of the insecurities that I let dominate me a little bit more than I would have liked in my 20s, that without those, what was I capable of? And he infused that sense in me. And so maybe it was a desire to go show that I could, that I could give him something to look up to. Maybe it was that that same kind of realization that we started with that our families had worked so hard to be here and I I had the opportunity to go do more and it would be wasteful if I didn't. And maybe it was all of those things converging at once, but I I didn't really have a doubt in my mind that I was going to go do more. I didn't know it was business school. I didn't know what business school was going to lead to. Actually, in my interview for Berkeley, It was really interesting. The interviewer asked me, why do you want to go to business school? And given my background and career, as you said, I was not the business school candidate. I had never taken a finance class. I'd never done accounting. I was coming from this really left field kind of industry. And I drew a circle. And I said, here's the slice of the pie that I know I know. Here's the slice of the pie that I know I don't know. And then here's all the rest of the pie that I just don't know that I don't know. And I feel like business school is going to help me go learn that and go see what else is out there. And, you know, and it it really did. It opened my uh, eyes to a lot more that I had never realized. And now I, I feel that it's almost a crime that we don't teach everyone a certain level of business for them to be successful in this world.
1: I I totally agree with that. I think it should start at a much younger age actually. Yes. <laughs> just understanding the ins and out of business, how money flows, and just the basics of that. Yeah. But you know it's so beautiful the way you talked about your first son, and I know you have three kids now, and how that really opened up your mind to you doing more in life. Because one thing that I will say with this podcast that I personally was shocked about is the amount of women, successful women like yourself, who actually started their business when they were pregnant or had a very infant child. So I haven't had a kid yet, but the motivation that I hear, like you said so eloquently, it really inspires you to take it to the next step versus handicapped you that you might not be able to manage it all. So did you ever at that time think it being difficult to manage both worlds? Because obviously being a mom is so time consuming, or do you think that inspiration really just pushed you to figure that out at the time?
0: I will say that ignorance is, uh, (laughs) was a tool at the time. I didn't realize how much work it was going to be, to be honest. The business school part I could handle a little bit more, especially, you know, a little shout out to my, my classmates and colleagues at the time. And my peers were so willing to work around my schedules, like, you know, coming to to do study group at my house because my little one was sleeping. They were just so supportive that way. So I'm really grateful for the Berkeley community that helped me in that regard. I kept making decisions that were adding more difficulty, right? So going to the first one was actually applying to business school and, and being the primary breadwinner at that time and the primary caretaker, right? So both, so that my day started and ended with my son and I'd have to go back online, not only to work but also to study for the GMAT, to apply to school, right? All of those things were super hard. Then I got into school and then it was even more because I I actually had to study. I'd never taken these classes before. And then I decided to take an internship and then I decided to to do a startup, you know? And it, it just like I was building and building all these layers, And I just had this, again, this pervasive sense that I needed to take a leap. I definitely pushed the limits of what our family could handle, you know, and I came very close to breaking it. So I'm glad and thankful to be on this other side, but I really think it was a lot of ignorance and a leap of faith.
1: And we'll dig a little bit deeper into that later into the interview, because there's so much I want to unpack about your journey, managing family life, motherhood, and the business. So I'm glad you brought that up. But switching gears a little bit, you go to business school, and I know in the process of you applying, you actually met your co-founder, Carla. So can you talk to us about how you guys crossed paths, because I know it was pretty serendipitous, and really how the idea of Kiana came to life? For sure.
0: So I met Carla on a tour of Stanford when she was a second year, and I was a prospective student, and I wasn't even sure that business school was right for me. And it was really a little bit of the universe um, either pushing us together or how I like to think of it as us taking advantage of opportunities that are presented to you without knowing that they could lead to so much more. Right. So like making the reasons happen for yourself. And I introduced myself at the back of the classroom as a interaction designer and a mom, which shows you that. I wasn't really serious about business school because who says that in the prospective student visiting? (laughs) Hey, I'm a mom. I want to go to business school. And she was working on a project for mothers. She was working on this scrapbooking project online and she needed an interaction designer. So what are the chances? She actually came and talked to me after class and she had never, ever talked to a prospective student before. So it was literally those kinds of things. But I think the place where we both kind of took advantage of this serendipitous meeting is that, you know, she recognized something in me. I jumped at the opportunity to help her, right? Like, let's do this together. So I helped her on the project. Um, We had a great time working together. And then two years later, when I was at in my second year at Berkeley, she came and said, I want to do this with you.
1: I love that because I think having a co-founder is like another marriage. So being able to work on a project together before you really committed on Kuyana, I think I'm sure I would love to hear, was that just game changing for you? It was because we
0: saw our compatibility. And I think a lot of the mistakes that co-founders make in selecting one another is that they try to find someone similar to them. And for Carla and I, We had similar values, so we were both very value-driven with hard work, kind of that immigrant lens, you know, that desire to to really push our boundaries, but we had a compatibility that was very opposite from one another, talent and skill-wise. Right. So I'm very 80, 20. She's very 20, 80. You know, she has this penchant for branding, you know, to really push it to the 100 percent. I'm a storyteller. You know, she was coming from math. I was coming from, you know, the digital side. It was it was a different kind of way of working together. And, And between the two of us, the great thing was and what we discovered on that project is that we could do every single job. In the early days of Guyana, we did every single job, whether it was fulfillment, customer service, the digital side, the product side, the marketing, everything we did ourselves, the branding. And it really showed that we could, between the two of us, conquer this this challenge in front of us.
1: Sure, exactly. It's all about the willingness, especially in the early days to pull your sleeves up and dive right in because not everyone is willing to do that and it's not glamorous at
0: all. Yes, no, I mean, very little. I, like that's the funniest part. We'd be like in factories all day in like a beautiful country and then you'd go outside and you'd have to take a, a snap for Instagram to show like, oh, look at how great our lives are. Not that, I, I don't know why that's necessary, but you know, like that was, it was a little bit of that marketing thing where in the actual reality of being vegan is is way less glamorous.
1: We definitely hear that a lot on this podcast. So you and Carla got to know each other pretty well. You enjoyed working together. How did the concept of Kuyana come to play?
0: Carla had this really strong commitment and desire to build a fashion brand. And she knew very clearly that a brand was going to be where the most equity would come for a consumer-based company. And that was very early, you know, like people were not talking about brands at the time. Inventory-laden businesses were not popular at all with investors. She knew she had a very clear vision that way. What was less clear was how this was going to be received by the customer, how it was going to be messaged to the customer. Once you get past the, the kind of beauty and the products of it, how are we going to tell this story and build this in a very crowded space? And so that was part of the place when she brought this idea to me that I loved, right? Because this was a user experience that touched digital, that touched physical, that touched consumers in a very direct way. And many of the projects that I'd worked on in my previous careers were so removed. Like they required, you know, at the agency side, it required another client to put it to market. Or on the Disney side, it was just, you know, like user experiences for something that was very well established, right? Whereas this was new. We could tell customers, take them on a whole journey, step-by-step, customer-by-customer, which is really challenging, right? When we're having these conversations, this is 2011, we're coming up on the 10-year the anniversary of Miana, um, this summer, and we're having these conversations. D2C wasn't a term. There was no idea of direct-to-consumer. Nobody was starting brands at that time, especially not online. Right. I mean, you find out later that many people were incubating similar ideas, but we were we felt very alone. We were we were doing all of these things for the first time with this really strong. And that's the value thing, this very strong shared value that we wanted to make a difference in the women's lives that we were going to provide these products to and to the people who are making the products. That was the one thing that was very clear to us
1: having a really clear mission and why, even if you don't really know the exact business model will be your driving force, right? And your North star in those very early difficult days. You know,
0: very clearly, and I give this advice to other entrepreneurs, what you can and cannot compromise. So you have this part of it that really cannot change, right? So no matter what you do, that has to stay true because that's where you find your own inspiration. And then everything else, you have to be open and agile to to any kind of evolution.
1: Yeah. And it's so important to keep that source of inspiration because as you know, there's so many roadblocks you hit in the early days. So if you're not pushing towards something you feel inspired by, you'll just collapse and not even want to continue. So to your point, it's so important to hold on to that. And one thing I thought was interesting about the early days of Kuyana was the first two years of your business was really focused on nailing the supply chain and really figuring out your business model. You know, I think a lot of people think starting a business and launching your product website or service happens in like six months, but you guys really took two years before anything was live. So can you kind of talk to us about that specific timeline and what you guys were really nailing in those two years? So we were selling products from day
0: one essentially. So in May of 2011, we made our first product, which was the Panama hat, but it was in the way we sold it was really about learning. So our whole idea was, okay, we have one product. This one product is going to be a proof point to product market fit right? But before we launch a brand, it's going to take some time. So we went country by country. We did product by product. We had to prove a lot of things. Was this product, a higher quality, well-made product going to be well-received? If it is well-received, are they going to buy more of this product? Are they going to buy the next product that's radically different from the first product? Are we able to sustain the supply chain if they do buy these products, right? So there's lots of questions. Yeah, and how are we gonna fulfill this? Can our suppliers continue to make these products as they scale? Will the quality be the same? And the one thing that was different, I think about the Guiana journey is that many other brands were doing these very hype launches without having those questions answered. And they were hoping that the customers would forgive them when they made mistakes. And so for us, we, we really thought that it was important that we had enough products, enough product quality, and enough to back up the brand before we ever marketed ourselves in a, in a big way. It was really important to us.
1: And I think even for me, I'm, I'm launching a new business and you know, so much of being an entrepreneur is your own impatience, but then you have to remember you need to do things properly and lay the foundation before you really turn that knob on, like you said. So hearing your journey and the patience you guys had and really the questions you asked, I think is a reason why you are still a very successful company 10 years down the line because you thought about it from the early days
0: it was, I mean, and now hindsight's 2020, right? At the time, at the time, there were moments where I was like, you know, Carla, we have, you know, like we would launch a new collection. And there were certain pieces from the old collection that Carla would say, let's take those down. And I'm like, but if we have products to sell, why wouldn't we sell them? If people are still buying them, why would we not sell them? And it was really about, this assortment and how the brand flowed together. And, you know, and now in hindsight, you're like, oh, that makes perfect sense because we're about fewer better things. But in in the early days, when you don't know that, right? You're figuring everything out. It was really hard. You know, there are lots of, you're challenging, that's what makes Starting a company so hard, and this is what I think you're going you're gonna to find for yourself as you, as you build more and more businesses. This is already one of them. So you're talking about building your next business. As you build more and more businesses, you realize that what makes it hard is how much you challenge everything because you don't know what's working yet and you don't know why. Is it working because the product is good? Is it working because we marketed it well? You know, is it like, what, what is it? And so you're always challenging everything. And later you realize, okay, this is what works for us. Let's keep going back to that as we innovate and, and, and evolve further.
1: That is so helpful to hear. And it actually takes me to another question that I want to ask. And you guys were very early in the luxury direct-to-consumer space. Like, Like you said, now everyone is familiar with this concept and you see a lot of businesses in this space, but you were really first in market or in the early days of this entire concept. So Educating the customer and creating that messaging with them for them to even understand what you're providing, I know was really tough. Like you said, it took some time to finesse. And I know at some point, you really nailed that messaging. So can you kind of talk about the importance of how you created that education and really how you got to that messaging that really took you guys to the next level?
0: It was a lot of deep work. We applied quantitative analysis, qualitative analysis. We did user research, which was my bread and butter. So we did a full ethnography. We went into women's homes. We asked them about what they had in their closets and why. We asked them about what were their treasures and why, if they, you know, if they had a a box of things that they would take with them, what would be in it and why would they keep those things? So we did a lot of deep work, user analysis. We would sell at every festival. You know, we were right there with our customers doing research all the time. And so we would watch as a woman would come up. And I love this story. She'll try on that Panama hat. She's checking herself out in the mirror. She's seeing what it looks like. And, you know, Carla and I are rattling off like this is handwoven and they have to do it in the morning and otherwise the straw draws out and it goes, you know, from the inside out and it's made in Ecuador by women and people call it the Panama hat, but it's not, it's actually an Ecuadorian hat. Um, And we would tell them all these stories and they're not paying attention at all. They're just looking at what the hat looks like on them. But then a friend would walk up and they would rattle off everything we just said. Right. When they weren't even making eye contact or listening at all. And what we realized is that, you know, we had been marketing Guyana as how it was made. And and that's important to people. Super important. But it's not important first. And that's okay. And most brands that do really good social impact make you feel guilty for that. Right. And we wanted to be the brand that says, hey, everything that we do is going to be ethical. It's going to have integrity, but it's fun because it's fashion. Right. So let's change the message. And what we were learning from all these customers, like the ones, you know, that had closet sold stuff that weren't giving them value. Is that what we needed to be about, and what we were so good about our clean assortment at every product being a winner was about changing the way it was sold to here are the ones you need. Because when we would see our customers interact with our products, we didn't make that many things then, but they were always the ones they were grabbing. So there was something there, right? So there was something that was special about the Guiana pieces that they weren't finding in the others. And that's what we view as what the new luxury is, right? We didn't actually even use that term in the beginning because luxury to us was something that was exclusive. We weren't trying to say accessible luxury was, an oxymoron. Like they, you can't be both. So we never actually even, we never use, if you go through all of our marketing materials, we never talk about that to the consumer that, hey, Guyana is a luxury brand. We say that we make premium quality. The new luxury to us is actually time, right? Giving a woman time so she can go do all these things in her life. That's what we're about. That's what we strive to do every single day.
1: And when you were going through that process of really understanding what messaging resonates with the customer and you came towards the fact that time was so important, how did you see that impact your business in terms of the revenue? Did you see something shift at that point or how was that experience for you and Carla?
0: It took us like 15 minutes to describe everything Guiana did before. It took forever. It was like, we do this and, you know, and we empower, you know, micro industries and we're giving jobs and it's made with quality and it's like at least twice as better as everything you find in the market. But at half the price, like we had to explain so many things. And when we just said these are fewer, better things and we got to that line, it changed everything because who doesn't want fewer, better things? right? Like everyone wants every object in their life to have meaning. Nobody wants clutter and insignificance. And so all of a sudden you have women who are like, yes, that's what I need. But we had a marketplace, which was interesting, that was about more is more. And so we were of the first ever, I, I don't know many brands that were launching at the time, talking about things the way we were talking about it, that you really didn't need as much and the inundation of items in the American kind of culture was a bad thing. You know, this is predating Marie Kondo. This is before, you know, many of these messages were getting out and people thought we were crazy. They thought that as an e-commerce company that was going to make money, how could you tell people to buy less? But to us, what our woman wanted and going back to, to the core of what she needed and why we were building this business to really empower women, that's what, let us take that risk, even though it seemed counterintuitive.
1: One main theme that I would say is just you really involving yourself with the customer, right? And you're getting very much in the nitty gritty, whether it's our closets or fairs. And I think for any entrepreneur listening, right? Just be really close to your customer. Just listen, listen to what they're doing. Because as you said, and it's a good reminder for me too, is you'll get those insights, just being around them and asking the right questions and seeing how they're interacting with your product. asking
0: Why all the time? Why did they do that? Why did she tell her friend? Why did she wear the Panama hat? Why do I want to do that? You know, why did I join Kuyana when I didn't have a fashion background? What meaning did it bring to my life? Right? Those are all the questions that whole first year and a half before we got, you know, succinctly to fear better things. That's all we were doing. We're asking ourselves, why, 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 why? Every week we would hit the whiteboard. And now we're like, oh, of course, that's what it always was. You know, it took us a lot. And and even, and I think the thing is, it's interesting because many people start to talk about, they they describe themselves in this way now. And that definitely is a compliment to us. I take it as that. But I also caution that, you know, the reason why that phrase works for us is because we are that through and through every product every supply chain, you know, every everything we make has that embedded integrity and quality. And, and if you can't deliver that, then it's not a fear of everything.
1: And you do see that in your business. You know, it starts from the top, you and Carla as the founders, and you see the integrity with the products that you make, the suppliers that you work with, and really the end-to-end touch you have with the customers. So I understand the first two years of the business, you were really trying to prove out the business model. Did you guys invest your own money starting out? And how did you think about fundraising? Because I do know you ended up raising money from investors a little bit later on. If you
0: take that impact perspective, how are we going to impact women's lives and also impact the suppliers that we're making our products? We needed scale. And the only way to get to scale was to raise money. On the supplier side, we could not give them the business that they deserved unless we made more of it. And at our price point, since we weren't doing insane margins like a luxury brand, they needed to make more items and that type of business is much better for them, right? Because a luxury brand, if you think about it, if they're marking it up a thousand, 2000%, the supplier doesn't see that. Right. So they much rather have a business like Guyana where they get a larger quantity order. Right. And so we needed to we needed to raise that money to get them the scale. The moment you have money, the moment is the moment you get careless in your spending. And so. We, in the early days, it was a 25K check from Carla's dad, 25K from my dad, because I still had business school loans, as did she. And so we took that early money and we were so frugal. The two first collections in 2011 were just done with that money. And once we had some proof points is when we raised more, when we knew exactly what the capital would be used for. Still made mistakes, right? You always do with those first checks. You know, it was really about many people raise money cuz they think that's the first step. But it really is understanding your business in order to raise the money to fuel your next step. That's really the perspective we took.
1: Nowadays, it's kind of like an arm of excellence when you raise these large rounds of funding when in retrospect, you know, everybody has a different growth strategy. So it works for some companies versus the other, but I think it's important to talk about building a sustainable business and when to raise the right capital. Again, every business is different, but I love the path that you took. And you know you also talk about raising a little bit of capital and really creating a business that sustains itself. So can you kind of talk about what that means when you talk about sustainability in your business? It's an
0: analogy that works really well in a tech company that you can spend, 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 spend and then eventually your software becomes so successful, your digital product becomes so successful that... You don't have to spend more on the development and the the making of it in order to, to reap those profits. When they apply that philosophy unilaterally to other products, it just doesn't work, right? Because the businesses that we're making and creating, especially in consumer that are not digital, require a lot of overhead. They will consistently require marketing. It will consistently require raw materials to make the products themselves right? And so there's this mindset in kind of the valley with raising money that you should spend up to your lifetime value. And it just simply doesn't work. So a business to sustain itself has to be profitable on first purchase. It doesn't make sense otherwise. And when you look at these kind of financial models, any business that cannot achieve that in a certain amount of time is almost destined to fail because the economics just don't work. and so we were very conscious from day one you know our earliest financial pitches to investors were unit economics based. here's what the CAC is here's what the repeat rate is We never actually even got to the attrition because how could we even assume how long they would be with us right we hadn't proven that and so, That has been the philosophy from day one. Maybe it's, you know, our immigrant upbringing. I don't know. It just never really made sense to us to spend more than we make, you know. And so when we do that, you know, with time, of course, it's, you know, like we had to take capital to get that scale and reach those economies of scale. But it wasn't on the actual marketing that we felt that we were being irresponsible.
1: And I'm curious, how was your fundraising experience as a company so focused on unit economics and profitability from day one? Did investors resonate with that topic? And also, was it tough to get your point across because the company is for women, by women? Was it hard for investors to really understand the concept since so many, you know, even to this day, are mostly men?
0: it was really hard and not for, I think a lot of times when we talk about the, you know, women raising money and the fact that there's only 2.6 or 2.7%, depending on the source of women that receive venture capital, it's not because people are sitting in the room and saying, oh, you know what? I don't like women. I'm just not going to give them the money, right? Like, it's not coming from that place. It's coming from, a lack of understanding of the female consumer in our case, right? They just weren't, they didn't relate to the problem. And you know, a men who the majority investors are, they can go back and repeat buy a shirt and it still fits the same way. We didn't have those options before Equiana, like before the era of direct to consumer. You would hear women all the time saying, I should have bought two of something. Because you can never buy it again, right? right? And so those are the kinds of problems. and so when we would we would pitch to them, they just didn't get it. They didn't understand. So a lot of it's just a product market understanding. Uh, women, you know kind of to the top of us talking about business education. We are not empowering our women to understand the business and economics early we don't empower them to understand the computer science and the analytics this happens very early where women opt out right like little girls opt out because they think they can't do it and that's the problem right so this gets perpetuated and then when you're in that boardroom pitching and you you don't have that confidence it comes across you don't have the data to back up what you're doing. And so that's the one thing that we did. We were like, okay, we're going we're gonna to bring it in all the data. We overachieved, I think. We had unit economics from two collections, right? Repeat rates. You know, we had CAC already. We already could project. LTV to me is always a projection that's flawed, but we could at least tell an LTV story. And so we had all of the metrics and then it was about finding the people who understood the problem. And since there were so few VCs that were women, it took a while to get to that moment where you're not spending 35 minutes, 40 minutes of an hour pitch on just describing the problem. So we weren't even allowed to get to the intelligence, right? To show the data, to show why this supply chain was better. We couldn't show that. That to show, you know, in a in a lot of ways, Huyana is a supply chain play. Right, because we produce in small batches, we use data to project inventory buys. We do so much on the back end to make this business intelligent. And if you can't even get there, we we knew we were never going to win. So we had to realign. And and where we saw again that user research where we saw success is women understood the problem. So if you pitch to a woman, they got the problem, and you could go get to the intelligent part of your business. And so we switched strategies. We pitched to only women.
1: Looking back at those days, how many meetings do you think ended up turning out as rejections when you were pitching to investors?
0: I would say 90%. We took so many meetings. One of my favorite stories was with Kristen from Forerunner. And we were always like, we laugh now because, you know, we're we're friends and we were just like ships passing in the night. She was raising her fund for Forerunner when we were raising our, our seed round. When we did our A, she was only doing seed investment. Like, so it was always kind of not aligning but i remember at the end of the meeting and carla laughs about this a lot i was just so frustrated yasmin about like all of these meetings that never went anywhere and i took we were meeting her at a cafe or restaurant and i took a napkin and i wrote down will you invest yes no maybe in the future and i just handed it to her. And I was like, can you, can you just put us out of our misery and circle an option? Like, I, I just, I don't know what to do anymore. It was really hard. You know, like those early days are super challenging. You don't know it's going to happen. And even when it's happening, you're like, I don't know if this is going to happen.
1: Yeah. Until you actually sign the papers and it's done. Right. <laughs> Until the money is in the bank.
0: Right. Until you see those funds transfer, like you can't take a breath.
1: Yeah. And you definitely uh, see that with acquisitions too. You just never know until it is officially signed. And like you said, the money's in your bank account. Because when I was in my finance days, you would just see so many deals get so close. We spent so much time and it would just fall, fall through. So that definitely resonates. Thinking about those challenges that you were experiencing with Kuyana, especially when you were building it out, did you ever think twice about getting involved or think about potentially quitting?
0: I don't think we ever allowed ourselves the option to stop. It was either the money, the challenges, like they were going to be so insurmountable, right? Like we couldn't put food on the table. I mean, I I would even, before we would stop, I'd have Carla move in with me, you know, like if, if she couldn't pay her rent, that wasn't an option. We were committed to the very end until we were forced to do otherwise. And I think that's the you know, the luxury we've had as first generation immigrants in this country that, you know, we could always go and ask our parents, right? Where our parents didn't have that luxury. And so we didn't provide ourselves that same out. If we made this commitment, I took my parents' money, right? And and that was not lost on me. I remember, you know, being in India, it was my first collection with Guiana. I had to take you know, my six month old, I had to take my three and a half year old, I had to take my husband, you know, like going to India, I couldn't not see family, I had to take my mom. And I remember my mom telling me like, this isn't, you know, you know, and no, it's only $25,000, you know, but this isn't play money, like, what are you doing? You know, and I was like, mom, taking your money is, is an indication that I'm not playing, that I'm committed to this beyond, right? Like, I, I don't, I don't take your money lightly that idea was not lost on me. And I just don't think we would give up as a result.
1: Yeah. And do you think your parents, you know, obviously being you being first generation immigrants, what were their thought process around you kind of leaving this successful career with young kids at the time and really jumping into this entrepreneurship journey? Did they understand like, what was their perspective? Because now I'm sure they're so proud of you, but you know, I'd love to hear your perspective on what that was like in the early days.
0: They thought we were crazy. I mean, like Carla's father cried, you know, like here was this girl who went to, you know, Stanford Business School, was at Goldman Sachs Investment Banking, turned down these opportunities after graduating and was selling hats at the side of the road at a Stanford tennis competition, just like, you know, like the people in Ecuador, right? Like that didn't have money or opportunity. My mom, I mean, she just thought she didn't understand it at all. Why would I add all this hardship? You're married to a doctor. They didn't get it at all. In fact, my parents took a trip to Ecuador and hung out with Carla's father. And they just laughed about, they made fun of us, I think, all through dinner about how they just didn't believe that, you know, what we were doing. They bonded over it. There was not, they believe we are capable of everything. Yet they often, at least my parents, advised me against everything. And I think it was really to protect me from the same American dream that they offered me. They just didn't want me to have to work as hard as they did. And to me, it was like, how could I not?
1: That's so interesting to hear the way you said it, because thinking about my own journey my dad also moved to america from iran with not much and has created multiple businesses for himself but i will be the first to say that as a family we've seen the struggles right we've had really high highs and we've had low lows you know that's the life of an entrepreneur but whenever i wanted to kind of jump into that world and take that risk it was always like, you're not ready yet. You know, don't do this. You have a great job. You're getting promoted. You're making good money. And witnessing the way he's built his life, I really wanted to do it for myself. So I think, like you said, they're looking to protect us. And I think you really don't know until you do it yourself. So it's just, it's always fascinating to think about. It comes from a really good place,
0: but they advised against, I basically did not take much of their advice with any of this because they're, I mean, at one point, my mom told me I should be a woman of leisure, right? Like I was applying to Harvard Business School. I w- I went to visit. I didn't end up even applying because it wasn't the right place for me. But I called her after. I was like, oh, your your daughter just visited Harvard, you know? And she said, no joke, I pray you don't get in. And it's not because she was hurtful or being mean, but you know, in her mind, she didn't want me to have to go live in Boston and work hard with young kids, right? Like she didn't, she didn't want me to have a tough life. She meant well, I hung up on her. <laughs> she did mean well.
1: <laughs> totally. And I feel like in those early days, you just need those blinders and just kind of keep people close to you who are, you know, supporters of what you're up to and just kind of not look elsewhere if you're not getting that encouragement because it's tough. It's tough.
0: And you have to be okay with failing. Harla and I are very, very fortunate. Most entrepreneurs do not do well with their first venture. Right. And so to me, I knew that the commitment was there that I was going to see this all the way through. But if I failed, at least I tried. And that's why I did it. I just didn't want to have regrets.
1: I think that's such an important point to highlight is being comfortable with failure, right? And whatever risk you're taking in your life, whether it's starting a business, changing your career, motherhood, whatever it could be, is really enjoying the moment and knowing that if you don't do it, you'll regret it, right? And none of us want to live a life of regret. So I think that's a really important point to talk about. So I also want to talk to you about motherhood. I know this is such a big topic, and I've always looked to you in terms of advice on how you manage it all, right? You have three beautiful sons. You actually just gave birth to your third, who's seven months. Congratulations. And Thank you. I'm just so curious, how do you manage both being an incredible mother, being an incredible wife, being an incredible founder? Because from my perspective, you have it all. But how do you think about balance? And do you think you have balance in your life today?
0: I think balance is total bullshit. I think that as an objective that we put on women to try to achieve, I think it's an impossible one. I also don't like the word because it means you're taking from one to give to the other and to really push your options that's just not achievable so to me i play different roles at different times i joke that i'm mother of the year one day a year on their birthdays i am very real about where i'm going to fall short i outsource relentlessly one of the best business decisions i made at Guyana was to hire a, an amazing nanny who has been with us for eight years i don't know any of this would be possible without her you know, and I want to give shout outs to to the help I get, right? I just don't try to balance. I, I think if we seek fulfillment and we maximize for that, then we know that it can be achieved, maybe it can be achieved in aggregate. And maybe there are years where you just work hard and you forego your personal development or you forego, you know, having children Or you forgo, you know, running a business, whatever that might be that you want to maximize your potential, that's what you have to do. And then figure out how you can just still feed those things so that they don't die. Right? But I don't think you can be all things to all people at all times. And I I think anyone who achieves that's just going to be sad because they're failing all the time. It's just an unachievable objective.
1: No, I'm so glad you're, you're doing that. Cause I think there's a lot of expectation for, you know, women to be amazing mothers, amazing partners, amazing founders, if they want to start a business and it doesn't seem like it's achievable in a 24 hour day. It's not.
0: And these days, Yasmin, it's even worse. I mean, we put female founders on these panels, we glorify them. Right. And, and we don't show the struggle and the sacrifice that, you know, like I was in counseling with my husband in those early days, right? Like I, I almost quit because I felt like, you know, my son couldn't take it, right? He was like falling through cracks, like the house was falling through cracks, like the family was breaking until I got really good help. And then I was like, okay, I can continue to do this, right? Like there's a lot of those moments where you, I didn't go to bed for the first five years before 3 a.m., right? Like I'd put him to bed. I would stare at the wall for half an hour just because I I would be so wiped and then I'd get back online, right? And then I'd do it again every day. And that's without knowing, you know, those early years where you're going to be, nobody celebrated you. There was no success. We didn't know if we were going to make it. It was hard enough to get like people to like our Facebook page that were friends. You would send an email and you're like, just, we have an investor pitch. Just hit the button, please, right? Like that was hard. And those very same people are like, "Oh my God! Look how successful you're on!" Like I'm like, I remember remember that. (laughs) I remember that you didn't hit like. You know, like I, because Carla and I knew every order, we would call each other like, oh my God, today's the day that someone knew that we don't know ordered from us. Like that's like, it was such a breakthrough. And then Carla would be like, today's the day this person, I'd be like, oh, that I know her, right? Like it was like, we were just waiting and, and, and to do that day in, day out and never get the accolades, right? Like putting these women on panels and not representing that is a disservice to other female entrepreneurs. We have to We have to show the full picture.
1: And that is the mission of the podcast is to talk about the realities of entrepreneurship and what it takes to be a founder because to your point, I think a lot of it is glorified. So I know we talked a little bit about this already, but what advice do you have for women who are looking to manage their family and also their startup life. I know you talked about how tough it was in the early days when you'd be up till three in the morning, trying to work on the business after your sons went to sleep. So looking back on your own personal journey, what advice do you have for women who are looking to do that today?
0: Yeah, I think it's really about making sure they're solving the right problem. I don't necessarily think that every woman should be a female founder, right? Like I I do think that we should see why are we doing these objectives, what are we trying to get from it? I think starting at the top, like what problems are they trying to solve? And if there's something that's fueling them and I hope it's not the glamor of it, right? That, oh, I wanna be on stage two, like so-and-so, I wanna be on the cover of a magazine because that can't be your reason. So you have to figure out deeply as to what, if you look at your landscape and you say, what will be the opportunity that gives me no regret? what allows me to push myself to the ultimate level that i want to be pushed to and being realistic about what that can be and what am i unwilling to sacrifice like i was unwilling to sacrifice my family right i pushed it to the brink i would have left right if i didn't find the right person to help us i would have left i would have had to so so defining all those things first for yourself and then going after your dream i think is important i think it's eyes wide open and i That's the part that my mom, in her praise now, even when we saw the early success and we raised rounds of money, she didn't relax. She didn't relax until she saw that my kids were happy. You know, like then she was like, okay, you know, you got this. You're not going to screw up one or the other, right? Because she knew that for me, happiness needed both. That doesn't mean that that's the case for everyone. So you have to really identify what fuels you and then decide. We should put other women on the covers of magazines too. Don't get me wrong. I think what we as founders have done is legendary. I know that the impact that we make and being part of that 2.6% provides an example to so many women. And if that's what you want to go, go do, go do it. But also like, don't, we shouldn't diminish the other work that women do in the process.
1: I agree and that's beautifully said. I want to talk a little bit more about some of the challenges that you faced in the business with Kuyana. You know, you're 10 years into the business and I'm sure there are multiple stories that you can share, but is there anything that comes to mind that you can share with our listeners and really walk through how you overcame it?
0: The last 2 years has been incredibly hard. Um, you know, just like from a macroeconomic perspective, macro environment perspective. And, you know, personally, like we lost my husband's sister in February of 2019. So I, I, you know, you then those are the moments where you do have to say, okay, right now my family needs a different priority. And so I actually took a little leave of absence from Guyana in the summer of 2019 to be at home to really help our family overcome this obstacle And I think those are moments to talk about too, that there's certain times where you have to step away and that our identities are not only tied to these things that we've built. And I think as women, a lot of times we, you know, criticize ourselves that we're not being all things, right? Like, and I had to, you know, like look at myself deeply to be like, okay, who am I without at this point, right? Come overcoming those insecurities that we still have, are super important. And honestly, I think it was actually really great for the business too. I ended up coming back in September with a new renewed focus and new renewed mindset. You got to see what the business was like without me. And sometimes your your founder voices can be really loud and disempowering to the team. And so it was really nice to come back and say, okay, this is where I'm actually useful. This is where everyone else has it under control. They don't need my opinion here. And so trying to like, you know, I still kind of as a mantra, as I'm deeper in it and further away from that leave, try to remind myself that, you know, like it's okay. You know, like if it's not the way that I think it should be done, it's okay. Like you need to be quiet now, or you need to remind everyone that it's conjecture because nobody knows the answer, right? Like that we're all trying to make it up and trying to chart a path because we're still very much a startup that way. Nobody has control and COVID teaches you that, right? Like, And our biggest success, honestly, with COVID is that we'll still be here. And that's a huge accomplishment that we built a business to sustain a global pandemic. And we're very proud of ourselves for that. You know, and so it might be sad that we didn't have, you know, we didn't meet other objectives, but we have to remind ourselves that ultimately in times of great stress, certain decisions, you have to make certain decisions for self-preservation. And I think everyone is realizing that we realized it kind of in a personal way in 2019, and then now we're realizing it in a global way in 2020, and we'll see what 2021 has to to bring our way.
1: Exactly, and and looking at last year, I've kind of followed the Kriana journey and how you guys have shifted your strategy a little bit as a business, but, you know, clearly, like you mentioned, it's a huge accomplishment to still be growing and sustainable through, you know, the pandemic that we were in last year. What were some of the key takeaways that you think really helped propel you guys forward? Were you quick to make certain decisions or how did you really think about 2020 in your business?
0: We acted very quickly. So we were one of the first companies to actually, you know, make the hardest decision of our business history to actually let, you know, our valued employees go. We cut many jobs internally to basically last us until summer of 2021. So we knew in March 2020 that this was not going to go away and we would not allow ourselves to do this more than once. So we had to do it well the first time which was really hard because, you know, like what if COVID was only a three-week thing as they originally said it would be? So we had to make really deep cuts that way. We shifted orders. So we were actually able to, since we are a business of bestsellers and we are closer to, we have tired of production timelines, we were able to shift into bestsellers and, you know, and hold newness into other seasons. We didn't cancel a single supplier order, which I'm very proud of because, those are the people who make our products and they have to sustain. So when we view sustainability, it's it's to sustain, not just, you know, kind of sustainability in a, in a retroactive perspective. But we need our business to sustain. We need their businesses to sustain. So that's kind of how we viewed it. So we made sure to cut in other ways. A lot of marketing spend we had to stomach You know, a lot of lack of growth, a lot of lack of buzz. We had to put pause on many projects we were excited about. And then the team, you know, I I cannot credit our team enough. They just rolled up their sleeves and did the work of more than one person. You know, we really, our culture got stronger that way. Everyone felt like they were in it together. If there's one takeaway, I want to make sure that we keep that top of mind. Mm
1: -hmm. And I'm sure that resonates or is helpful to a lot of entrepreneurs who are still trying to navigate their business, you know, in this new environment that we're in now. So that's definitely helpful. And I want to close on one last question that we love to ask all of our guests. Wealth means so much more than money. And everybody has their own definition of wealth. At this point in your life, what does wealth mean to you?
0: It's having security, safety, shelter, love, and the opportunity to fulfill our dreams, you know, it even continue to fulfill them, right? My husband actually asked me just this week, you know, are you successful? Do you see yourself as successful? Have you reached it yet? And I'm like, I, I reached it I reached it long ago, right? Because if I'm able to live with that regret, then I am successful. And everything else is a cherry on top. And, and wealth to me is that opportunity and then also to um, value what we have. Right. A lot of people would say this, right? Like if I just had my family, everything would be okay. And yes, that's true, but it's it's how you have your family and how you have your family is also comes, you know, comes with that opportunity to grow your family, to take your family places, to shelter with your family, right? So it's all of the things around us, which I, I'm very, very grateful for.
1: That is so beautiful, Shilpa. I have goosebumps as you were saying all that. (laughs) This was so much fun. Thank you for joining us and sharing all about your story. I mean, I could have talked to you for four more hours we'll have to do it again a part two (laughs) yes
0: we will over
1: wine exactly exactly (laughs) i love it thank you again for joining thank you yes
0: this is super fun i really really appreciate it and you guys listening you should see the thoughtfulness of this question list and her research and all the time that's spent behind the scenes here to produce such a wonderful show so thank you for your effort
1: oh appreciate it thank you shilpa